Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is therapy isn't just for white people. Kiara Amani joins us. She is an attorney and a co-host of a daily talk show on Los Angeles radio station KBLA. She's the co-founder of Like You Cards and is also the author of the book Therapy Isn't Just for White People. The book is a brilliant memoir talking about Kiara's compelling journey to understand the racial trauma experienced by many black people in America and the underlying effect it has on black mental health. We had a great time talking with her and so we hope you enjoy the discussion all right you guys we have a very special guest who is what i'm going to call a master millennial she is doing all the things she's an attorney a viral video celebrity she's tiktok famous <laughs> she's uh has a podcast And she's a radio host. She's done a lot of amazing things. Her name is Kiara Imani. And we're so glad to have you today. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. You make me sound so cool. Well, you are so cool. And we're excited to chat with you and hear about your story and your journey. The first question I always ask when we interview African-American guests Because you're all those things that I listed, but there's so much more to you as a human being, as a person. And so I will ask, who is Kiara Imani? I like to think about myself as a storyteller. I think story is at the heart of a lot of what I believe. I believe that empathy is really just using our imagination and stories provide us the opportunity to actually walk in someone else's shoes uh, so I think that's the the label I, I think about. But outside of that, I'm a friend and a sister and a daughter and a girlfriend. And I spend a lot of my time being those things outside of my professional labels. That's awesome. That is awesome. So tell us more about your story and just whatever you want to share with us today. So I grew up in Manassas, Virginia, you don't know anything about Manassas, it was the first battle of the Civil War, a fact which the town still proudly boasts. Um, So I grew up with white friends whose parents were dressing up and doing battle reenactments for the Civil War, celebrating the South because Manassas won that battle to to get it straight. So the the 
Yeah. So I, I grew up in that area and, you know, dealt with a lot of what it meant to be a token black, what it meant to be a black girl who was never really the main character of the story. Mm. I know we watch a lot of sh- the movies back in the day, like 10 Things I Hate About You or Clueless, where you'd have like the Gabrielle Union-esque type supporting black character to the white girl main character. And I think I felt a lot of that growing up uh, and have worked through a lot of that now. And I think probably the most uh, relevant thing to say about that is that I just recently had my first book come out. It's called Therapy is Not Just for White People about mental health and communities of color. And I really dive into just not just that experience, but I think as Black people, a lot of the daily microaggressions and trauma that we experience throughout our lives and the way that it affects us, the way that we see ourselves. I, When I use the word trauma, I use the definition by Dr. Anita Phillips, who is an awesome minister and psychologist. And she says, trauma is anything that negatively affects the way we see God, ourselves, and the world around yes. us. And when you think about that, we're all dealing with traumas all the time. And I think a lot of Black people are dealing with a lot of microaggression, racial trauma every day. So you can imagine like for someone like me growing up in a all white neighborhood, people saying things like, oh, you're so smart. You talk like a white girl or Mm -hmm. like being very surprised that I'm intelligent or you have a doctorate degree. You went to a great school. That's crazy. I would never assume that looking at like like looking at someone like you uh, and things that sometimes people even intend to be compliments that you can kind of pile up and make you think, well, what does it mean to be Black? Are Black people not supposed to be intellectual? Should I not be as intelligent as I am? Um, I also talk about in the book how my friends in first grade, you know, we were all giving each other nicknames and the only one they could think to give me was Buckwheat because it was a black kid from a TV show. And I went home and told my parents, and I didn't know it was racist as a kid. And my mom was like, that's racist. And I'm like, why? Why is it racist? I don't understand. Um, So yeah, I think a lot of my upbringing informed a lot of how I saw the world and was really thankful that I was able to go through a therapy process to kind of deconstruct a lot of those experiences. So let's talk about racialized trauma because being a the only African American specifically black girl in white spaces intersectionality race and gender the invisibility of it all and when we talk about the Gabrielle Union-esque character the supporting role the mammy to the Scarlett O'Hara the they, it's almost like a deification of black womanhood where we are the comforter, the consoler, the fixer, the listener, you know. And it's weird because it, it elevates you, but in a way that is so toxic and so poisonous to our spirits. And it typecasts us. It puts us in a hold. I have a few questions. Like, if you were to have listened to or allowed that those experiences, especially as a little girl, to inform you as a black woman. What did you what did you see yourself as? How did it define you? And then, you know, you go to your parents and thank God your parents are saying, 
that that's racist? How are they responding just on any given day when you're having to deal with some weird microaggression or you're trying to wrestle through what this means for you? And even as a little girl, I mean, you're not thinking that deeply, probably, like you said about the Buckwheat story, but just give me a day in the life of wrestling through something stupid that was said or a feeling that overwhelmed you, how your parents responded to it, your parents maybe having to talk to other parents, white people being made to feel uncomfortable because they got to deal with their mess because it's being put back in front of them. Walk us through all of that. Yeah. So I had a psychologist friend tell me that a lot of times when we experience a trauma or traumatic situation, especially when we're younger, Mm-hmm. and it doesn't have a happy ending, we will try to continually rewrite that story with a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, a lot of times we think about that in the terms of a toxic relationship, right? People are like, I keep dating the same type of guy mm-hmm. because you want to find the guy who's just as toxic, but you make it work this time because our brains are wired for happy endings. So I think as it relates to the role that I was playing in these relationships, I kept finding the same type of white girlfriend. Most of the time she was blonde because I think my first best friends were two blonde girls in kindergarten. And I kept rewriting that story over and over again, trying to give it a happy ending where I was the supporter and I was the helper and I was their sidekick and gave them a little street credibility. And, wow. you know, I almost always had the friends that loved to make some sort of like Oreo joke. Like we're mm. like an inside out Oreo, like two yeah. white girls and a black girl in the middle. And I just kept finding myself in those situations. And they kept ending very similarly where because I'm a human being, when I needed to put myself as the main character and yeah. put myself first, they were deeply offended. Yep. And it happened to me over and over and over again. I had uh, two friends threaten to commit suicide, like the crying, I'm going to kill myself because you're not being my friend and you're not being who you said you were going to be or you said something that hurt me and just like playing that you know, role, which I, I've heard Again, people play in toxic relationships, right? When you're not getting what you want. Really? Well, you're going to leave me? Then I'm going to kill myself then. Like I had that happen to me on, on a friend level. And I was like, this is unhealthy. I should not be in relationships where if I'm feeling incredibly sad or distraught or I even remember the the day my grandma died, one of my white friends wanted my full attention. And when I couldn't give it to her, she freaked out. And I'm like, I'm the main character today. Like, I'm going through something. I don't have time to mend your problems or fix your feelings or be that person for you who's a listening ear while you cry. I've got to take care of me today. And I'm just so grateful that I noticed the pattern because if you don't notice the pattern and even ask yourself, why am I continuing to get into this type of relationship? It's so easy to continue to repeat it. That is so much to digest. That's a lot. But it's not unfamiliar to me and I'm sure to many Black girls and boys. I have three sons and they have they are they exist in white spaces. I've existed and had to exist in white spaces. That sounds... That's crazy. And your parents, how are they leading you through all of this, this trauma, this craziness? 
Yeah, I, especially for my mom, I would say, you know, in just reading my book because I break down, it's really a series of short essays, 50 short essays about different experiences yes. that I've dealt with in corporate America and black hair and relationship. And, you know, for her, she was like, I didn't realize so much of this was affecting you so deeply. But I, you know, at the time, I didn't realize it was affecting me deeply either. I think a lot of times we just become, you know, high functioning and mm -hmm. we figure out how to get through it or we tell ourselves it could be worse. This isn't that bad. And it's not really until you sit down and take time to deconstruct what's been going on that you're like, oh, that really did affect me, or there are a lot of feelings there, or your therapist asks you about a situation that you think you healed from, but healing is not linear, and all of a sudden you're breaking down in tears and didn't even know that you still had so many yeah. unresolved feelings and emotions around the thing. Um, so I think my parents have always been incredibly supportive, uh, but to the extent that I even knew that I needed support. And. Mm -hmm. You did like, I think it was an interview with Forbes that uh, something you said in there was that like a lot of your successes were coping mechanisms to deal with the trauma or basically your attempt to reject that story of that box that you've been put into is how I heard that. Can you talk about that and how that kind of played out, how you dealt with that story that the world tried to put you into and how you tried to reject that and find a different version of you. Yeah. So I'll start with saying that I think for a lot of people, because I'm highly accomplished, um, I had someone review my book that was basically like, why is she writing about mental health? She's an attorney and has been incredibly successful. She has nothing to complain about. And I'm like, oh, they don't get it. Uh, mental health and success are in no way linked you mm -hmm. can be incredibly successful and at the top and still want to take your life, which is why we see it happen to so many celebrities or celebrities who are turning to drugs and alcohol to escape and not deal with their problems. There's absolutely no link. And I would go even further to say for a lot of people who are highly successful, they are dealing with some sort of anxiety or depression or something else, bullying, that has either catapulted them, like it's given them a reason, right? Like I'm going to show the world, they think I'm this person. So I'm going to show the world that I'm not. And I would say Kanye has a lot of that, right? Like I'm going to show you that I'm not this person yes. and it can be a great motivator, but it doesn't mean that there are unhealthy, unresolved traumas underneath it all. Uh, and then I think for other people, success can kind of become like a coping mechanism. Like, okay, I don't feel good about myself in that regard. So I'm going to do something where I can feel good about myself and get a lot of adrenaline very quickly. I'm going to accomplish something. And I would say a lot of people understand that in the context of a breakup. You break up with someone and you're like, well, I'm going to show that person. I'm going to get a haircut. I'm going to become the best version of myself. I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah. I'm going to get a great job. And you could do all of those things and still be incredibly sad about the underlying breakup. Uh, so I think it is really important to even inspect when you are in areas of trying to be super successful. I think that's great. Success is awesome. But what is the motivation? And are there things underneath that foundation 
that still require some sort of healing because it doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. You might feel good for two seconds when you get that reward or get that promotion, but then it wears off and you're back to having to sit with your own feelings and your own experiences. And maybe you find something else to go be successful at so that you can continue to run from your problems. But a lot of times they end up catching up with you. And a lot of times at the most inopportune times, which is why I think we see a lot of people when we say they were at the top of their game. Why now? Well, the stuff that they were not dealing with has finally found their way to them. And, you know, another thing I, I heard someone recently say is that with mental health, to think that you can look at someone's life and say, that person isn't dealing with any mental health issues is like saying you can look at someone and predict who's going to get cancer. There, mm. There's no physical qualification. Mm. There's no level of success yeah. that, that will indicate on the outside what somebody is dealing with on the inside. My wife and I sometimes uh, use this language in our home where I'm like an achiever, similar where I try to find too much of my identity in the things that I do. And so we, we have this language of getting a dopamine kick. Like if I'm feeling sad, then the, the brain will release dopamine when you accomplish something. And that feels good, but it's not a substitute for like the oxytocin, like the connection chemicals where you actually are in relationship and uh, like in a healthy place and feel connected to people. But it, it becomes for me like a coping mechanism or something to resort to. So I definitely relate to that. So how did you then move towards, and, and some of this will get into, uh, I think, the therapy. Like how did you come through that to a healthier understanding of your identity? Well, and specifically, what was the breaking point that started that? like that kickstarted that journey too? Mm. Yeah. So the first chapter of my book, I kind of just talk about I was really dealing with anxiety. And I would say I've always dealt with anxiety, but I was pretty good at being high functioning and coping and getting around it. Uh, but it was getting to the point where it was interrupting my life. There were just too many things that I would worry about and something would happen. And I would just break down, like can't leave my house. I just running think through things in my mind over and over again. I still struggle with doing this thing that my therapist is continuously trying to help me break out of where I get on the worst case scenario train, but I don't just like go to the train station and like get on the train and then hop back off. I will stay on that train and run through all the emotions of the worst case scenario. Like, what if this happens? What if they say this? Then how will I respond? And then how will they respond? And then how will they make me feel? And then how will I cope from that? And then how is that going to affect my life in the long run? And then I'll I'll do it for a while and then I'll jump on another worst case scenario. Like, or oh, this terrible thing could happen and just run down that train. And I could not break myself out of it. And it wasn't, it's so interesting because so many of the problems too were problems that I was creating in the future that didn't actually exist. It wasn't my present that was stressing me out. It was all of the potential bad things that could happen in the future based upon my present. And so I've, I mean, now have the tools to learn about like bringing myself back to the present moment. What are you actually dealing with? Uh, but I had a friend who was like, you know, Kiki, I really think you should try therapy. And I 
didn't think therapy was going to help, but it really had gotten to that point where I'm like, well, this is interrupting my life. So let me just try this like woo woo LA talk, go talk to somebody thing. Like, sure. So I, you know, spent a couple hours on the internet and found a black female therapist. I was very intentional about picking a, a black therapist and, you know, set up my first session and because she kind of looked like someone that was a friend, I felt like she was kind of easy to talk to. It, it wasn't the stereotypical old guy in glasses sitting across from you on a couch that I had imagined. She was just like a, a cool girl that I would hang out with. So we were just talking and I, you know, got on a little bit of just a little bit of my worst case scenario train because that's just the way my brain has been wired. Like, yeah, you know, I'm like 26, but what happens if I turn 30 and then I'm not married? Then it's going to throw off my whole time frame for my life because I'm supposed to have like two kids by 32 and then all of a sudden just going on this train. And of course, I'm not even 30 yet, but I'm freaking out about not getting married by 30. And she just kind of stopped me and asked like, where did you learn you had to get married by 30? And it made me so uncomfortable because I had never even stopped to question myself why I believed what I believed or why the scripts that I wrote myself existed or where I even got the scripts from. They were just the script. Like, this is the script and that's what you follow. And I had this whole realizing like, well, my parents got married really young and everyone I know gets married really young. And so I just assume that's what you're supposed to do. And But that's not really anything that I've you know, thought consciously about what I want for my life and just kind of shrunk in my chair because I was having this whole moment of like, oh my gosh, what do you believe about the world? Like, what do you want for yourself? I think that was like my first realization. And I've had a lot of other moments like that in therapy. I I remember talking to my therapist about being at work. I worked in corporate America as an attorney full time before I was like, no, that's not for me. Um, And I was arguing with somebody and I got really upset and I told her, yeah, I was going to like cry. But then I was like, I don't cry at work. Who does that? That's weak. So I didn't. I just sucked it up. And, you know, she stopped me and was like, well, where did you learn crying was weak? And then I had another one of those moments like it just is. And there were so many things where I say truisms. There are so many things I just accepted about the world that I saw as true, not as perspectives, not as opinions. Because how do you know what's true and not true unless you've had somebody hold up a mirror and you've actually inspected what you believe to be true? So this is really powerful. And thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing. And thank you for your book. Because you've touched on so many things. Black people not wanting to get therapy and there's, you know, the whole history of medical racism and medical disparities. But I'm working through intergenerational trauma and I, I, I've i written about intergenerational trauma and its effects. And you, your story is just, it's, it's amazing because I look at the boomers, that generation as the, they're the last generation of Jim Crow. And then they birth the Gen Xers, who are the the we're the first step of the assimilation assimilation generation. And so the Boomers, you know, they their 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 grandparents, like my great great grandmother was, her, my great 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 grandparents were enslaved, and my great great grandmother helped raise me. Didn't pass away until I was twenty. My parents grew up picking cotton in the rural South. I'm from Memphis, um, and so they saw. I think they put 
identified healing and they probably weren't even thinking about healing, but they put so much on success. So you go out there and you beat them at their game and you show them that we can do the exact same things that they can do and we can do better. And we, we are accomplished. We are proud people. So much was put on accomplishment so that they birthed the generation who had access um, because of the new the, the death of Jim Crow, in a sense. Of course, racism continued through redlining and just all the things, all the disparities. But um, my generation had a foot in the, the Jim Crow, the, the traditions of African-American, you know, uh, culture. But then we have this other foot that's closer to the millennials, like we're the middle generation. But then your generation comes, you're the millennials, and you, you were born in the white neighborhood. Like you, you lived in, like I... My generation, we went out to the country and we, you know, we did all the things, a lot of the things that my parents did, but then we imagined different things for our children. And so the millennials come along and they don't, they're, they're, um, there's a degree of separation from that traditionalism. And so you think, and you think that, you know, well, I'm just like everybody else. You have these white friends and yeah, you have to kind of, you know, navigate all of this, some of the awkwardness and the weirdness, but we just brush it off. We just brush it off. But then that, that drive for success is still there because you want to prove that you are just as worthy as anybody else. And, and so we bind to the, you know, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, being high functioning, being high achieving. And then it hits us like a ton of bricks. We get the success. We get the things. We say, I used to work for an attorney when I was very, like I was 19 years old working for a black attorney in Memphis. And he used to say, Katina, we have to save the race. And that was always in my mind. We have to save the race. And so we teach our children to save the race. And then we crumble under that weight. And your generation, I want to talk about like, how did your parents receive you wanting to get counseling? Because when I sought out to get counseling, it's like, girl, what? You going to do what? Like, you don't need no counseling. You just need the Lord. Like, you just need to pray. That's just the devil. And it's it, and because our parents grew up in survival mode, they didn't have time to process that. They just had to live. They couldn't. They couldn't. And so there's a lot of distrust in, in, in medical and in mental health and, you know, seeking out help. Because you have Jesus. Why would you need that when you have the Lord? So I know I just laid out a lot, but it, I mean, just in listening to you, that's I just hear, I just see all of these these things. No, I I love all of this, especially the intergenerational piece. And the first couple chapters of my book, I kind of write about my grandparents and their journey. And my granddad being the first in his family to go to college and trying mm-hmm. to make a better life. And mm-hmm. his wife, my grandma, Connie, who um, recently passed away. But she, I have this chapter called You Talk Like a White Girl. And I was telling her how you know white people keep telling me I talk like a white girl. And she was mm-hmm. like, they used to tell me that too. And she tells me this story about this realtor who she had, had conversations with over the uh telephone book because, you know, back in the day, you pick up the phone book and you call somebody and there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram, you don't have a face to a name. And she was telling him that she wanted to buy a house and she had four kids and 
she was trying to get into a good neighborhood and he just assumed she was white because of the way that she spoke. And her name was Connie and she had, you know, she told him, I have four kids, but I'm real small. I'm about five two. And he would always laugh like, Connie, every time I talk to you, all I can hear is like five two eyes of blue. And she would just giggle, of course, knowing my grandma doesn't have blue eyes, but you know, that was the relationship. And he went to work and started looking for houses in nice neighborhoods and, you know, and eventually found one that she thought she might really like. And she was like, great, I'm going to bring my family and we'll meet you at the house. And she shows up at the house and he's there. And you can imagine the look of shock on his face when he finds out this is not little white Connie, five, two eyes blue. This is a black woman with an Afro and a Mm. black big black husband and four black kids, but even how being able to racially assimilate helped them get into a neighborhood that they would have been excluded from, I'm sure, because it was all white had he assumed that she was a black person. And so just that, them doing everything they could to get us into those neighborhoods, and then me talking about what it was like actually growing up in those neighborhoods. So I do think that there is a a huge intergenerational piece to a lot of this, like the way yes. that the, the puzzles fit together. And I'm very lucky. And then I would say my parents have always been more like friends. I mean, their parents when they need to be, don't get yeah. me wrong, but yeah. my mom was 19 when she had me. So mm. I, I went to college with my parents. I went to grad school with my parents. So oh, wow. talking to them about stuff has always felt very easy because I'm, Love you it. know, they're telling stories about the college days and I was there. I remember I was, I was in college with you. Uh, but with my aunts and uncles, some of them, um, and other family members, they could not understand. And even just now after yeah. reading my book, are starting to grasp where I've been coming from because mm-hmm. I like my mom's sisters, like they would be like, You're there's something wrong with your your daughter. She goes to therapy. Like, what's wrong mm-hmm. with your kids? Like, what are you doing wrong, basically? Or she needs to, you know, maybe her relationship with God isn't in order, or maybe mm-hmm. she just there was just they had a lot to say. They didn't get it. Uh and one of my aunts who I had just kind of completely cut off in relationship because I Mm. just felt like she was mischaracterizing and like didn't understand anything that I'm saying. And I'm like, I'm trying to be vulnerable and you're throwing it back in my face. Mm. Uh, She called me like two weeks ago and was like, so I read your book and it's really good and I get it. Like, I get it now. And she didn't apologize. There was no sorry. But Mm. that felt like that was coming a long way. I was like, oh, you get it? Mm. Mm -hmm. I relate in so many ways to what you're saying. Um, and, and we don't talk enough about the impact that racism and oppression has had on the mental health of Black people. Uh, it's, uh, it's heavy, right? It and is. even myself, I went into therapy very cocky. Like, look, mm-hmm. I'm very self-aware. I read mm-hmm. a lot of self-help books. Mm-hmm. I'm conscious. I'm educated. Mm-hmm. I'm not oh, crazy. Yeah. These sessions are not going to be hard. Like, you're not dealing with a right? crazy person. I know me. I know what's going on inside of me. So we'll be good. And yet, every time there are questions my therapist would ask where I would just break down and bawl, which was so unfamiliar to me because, mm-hmm. again, I have very much been moving through the world like crying is weak and it was just an indicator like no there's stuff there that 
it, it's not that you're super strong and it hasn't affected you. You've just learned how to cope efficiently and bury it. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a survival mechanism, Absolutely. right? Like, I just got to get through the day. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that it's not stuff that you don't have to deal with. Well, and I think that, well, I know that Black women are becoming, are evolving when we start off as little kids and then who we become as women, especially for those of us who have the space and the resources to process and grieve and do trauma work in a climate, in a world that wants to still subdue us, still control us, and even in the ways that as Black women, we inflict because we, that's what we've been taught. We, we, we self-inflict and we, we do harm to ourselves. And I say that with grace because you don't know unless you know. I mean, you don't, you don't know unless you've been a black woman. Like the language that is there that hasn't, some of which is still being developed. We're still putting language to our experience. Your Black womanhood, because so much of this, so much of your trauma, so much of, you know, it's racialized. It has to do with you as a, a, a intersectionality. Like we're the only ones, like black women, black black and brown women, minority women. We're the only ones that you know the word intersectionality. It defines our experience, and that we are we experience oppression as black people, but then we experience oppression as black women. And we have an experience that's not even, that's very unique, even from black men. As you're navigating through this and doing your trauma work, how is your black, because I saw the video of you dancing and the freedom in which you danced. I know that probably a few years before the, before doing that video, you wouldn't even fathom doing something like that because you have to be this good black girl. You know, I mean, we stay away from colors. We stay away from wearing red, um, you, you know, a split in your dress or how you wear your hair or how you wear your makeup. Like there's so much weight and every every move, even from our mothers and our grandmas, like everything we do has to be calculated because we live in a world that, ha- you know, that we want to accept us and they're just not. And so you you end up doing this video and you are like, like, baby, you are putting it down. Like you are dancing and there's such a beauty and a freedom there. And dancing to a Beyonce song, let's not even talk about the psychology of that that you know black girls have to jump over these hurdles even to be able to embrace what what Beyonce is doing and who she is and how she's evolved and how she shared so much of her journey through her music to help to free us but then you know Christendom is anti Beyonce because Beyonce is pro black and it's it's there's so many layers to this but let's talk about you dancing and let's talk about you working through all of that to get all of your trauma work to be this black woman that you are now. Yeah. And it's like, I feel weird because my questions are kind of disjointed because they're not questions because there's me processing, you know, through some of the things that you're saying. But you know what I'm talking about. 
Absolutely. I'm you, 100% you know what I'm following saying. with you. I'm right with you. <laughs> yes. Um, and I actually think this goes back to one of your first questions, like, who are you? And I think just as important is like, who are you not? And I yes. used to call myself and see myself and take it as a compliment when people said, I'm a strong black woman. And yeah. now I fully reject that title. Like, yes. why do I have to be strong all the time? Why do I have to carry the weight of the world? And just because you can do Come something on. doesn't mean you should do something. Come like, I, I wrote an article, too, once for the Huffington Post that said, check on your strong friend. Yes. And it's this idea that a lot of times the people you consider the strong ones in your life, you don't check on. And it's a backhanded compliment when people are like, well, I knew you got it. Like, I knew you'd work it out. I knew you didn't need my help. No, we're still human. We still have moments. Yes. So yes. I've, I've kind of rejected the trope of the strong black woman and yes. have instead embraced carefree black girl, which is what my friends and I say. Like, yes. yes, carefree black girl. Letting go of the weight of expectations of who people think I am or should be or should not be, whatever your opinions are of me are none of my business. The only mm. thing that really matters is how I feel about myself and who I want to be in the world. And I think that carefreeness brings so much confidence and it's a different type of strength. It's not a strength defined by how much trauma you can carry. It's yes. not a, a strength defined by help, you know, saving the race and yes. being the person who's running the underground railroad and to Come on. To your own detriment where you're not yes. sleeping and you're not taking care of your problems. Like it's not that strength. It's a strength really rooted in having a deep understanding of who you are and being yes. unshaken in your identity. And so I think for me, just embracing that carefreeness uh, has been life-changing. Like this is who I am unapologetically. And I think that yes. is why a lot of us flock to Beyonce. You mentioned Beyonce. Because she very much embraces a lot of that in her music. And it's funny you say, you know, bring up the Christendom because I have a chapter in my book about faith and I actually do talk about Beyonce. I mean, there's always something to talk about with Beyonce. Now I would have yes. added all the stuff from the new album from Renaissance, but girl. At the time, she um, when my I was finishing up my book, she had just released Black as King. Yes. And I was reading online, you know. Christians coming for her, like oh, Jesus yes. is king. How dare this black woman talk about the strength of a black person? We shouldn't be focusing on race. We should be focusing on the fact that Jesus is king and that's not connected to color and all this stuff. And I just responded, this is based on the Lion King. Where was that energy when the Lion King came out? Are the lions sinful? Are right. the lions sinful too? Come on, sis. Come on. Because they called it Lion King. And it's just so funny how you can plug in any other word and people are okay with it. But then as soon as you start talking about black people being powerful and comfortable in our skin, all of a sudden it's not just a problem. It's sinful. Yes. Mm. Yes, indeed. And let's not even talk about the song Church Girl and how people just don't even get that black Christian women are under attack. And instead of asking, instead of saying, indicting Beyonce for writing a song about church girls, let's question why black women and black girls have not been safe in patriarchal systems in church. 
when we're talking about sexual abuse, when we're talking about having to fit in this bubble and all this Kevin Samuels-esque type of BS that has been put on our shoulders, how to be this woman that, you know, creates the environment for your home to, that makes your man want to stay or, you know, how to be so uh, uh, accommodating to your own harm. And people just don't get it. It's so funny to watch all of these talking heads, like these Christian, you know, conservative white people and black people come for Beyonce and not understand why so many run to her music, flock to her, because she gets it. She's experienced. She, we've watched her journey. We've watched her be in a space where she couldn't em- embrace her full blackness and all the things that she had to deal with as a light-skinned black woman who was was allowed into certain spaces and how everyone worshipped her, and then she became black. If you remember that SNL um, skit, yes. Beyonce is black! And how the world, you know, just lit, like, it, it, it was like Armageddon because Beyonce is black because they didn't know that Beyonce was black. And the backlash that she's gotten in her husband who wears his hair the way he wears it and what she's teaching her, like, it's a trip. It really is. That people just don't get it. Like, being a black woman is like being an alien, like, on this planet. No one gets it. A hundred No one knows. No one gets it except for us. Like, we have our own language. We have our own way that we, like, the only people that get black women are black women. But we have to get everybody else. And we have to know everybody else in ways that they don't know themselves just so we can navigate and survive. It's, yeah, so many things. And there's this... A line in Church Girl that I love. Yes. It says, nobody can judge me. I was born free. And yes. I think that line is so deep, even reclaiming our freedom, because yes. as Black people, we we have not just been emotionally or psychologically enslaved. Our bodies were physically enslaved. Yes. And subdued, like we became sexualized, like incubators. And and what's so funny, you know, the the theology of being born free. We as Christians know that we are born in sin, but being born free as a black woman means that we're being we're born free from y'all. A hundred percent. That we can have autonomy and agency, and that's what the girl is saying. She's not talking about like we know as Christians that we're born in sin. Like y'all, girl. Yeah. Girl, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> People just don't get it at, at, they don't. at all. And I think even on a on a deeper note, um, my boyfriend has just finished the 1619 Project, and I haven't read the whole book, but Ooh, there yes. were pieces of it that he just read out loud to me because he was like, Kiki, you, you need to read this. So uh, he would just call or I'd go over and he'd read certain chapters. Uh, and there was a one chapter in particular he was reading about slavery in America because that's the foundation of the book. But yeah. it talks about how back in the day, like earlier on in slave times, the same way that it was in England, the child always took the status of the father. So if the father was born free, the child was born free. Here in mm. America, we are so warped that we switched it we made it so that the child always took the status of the mother so that white men mm. <laughs> so that white men could continue to rape black women yes. and the ch- the children that were birthed would be born into slavery they did not yes. want 
the product of these uh, unconsensual relationships to be free people. And when you think that we would even create laws to ensure the wombs of Black women were not free, it's crazy to me that anyone could get angry at a Black woman who is sitting in the reality that we are born free. There is no law that you can put in place that enslaves us or or ensures that our future generations will be enslaved anymore. And we don't have to live under that anymore. And then even just the fact that we can own our sexuality and that doesn't free us to go out and do all these things that they would imagine, you know, because there's so much hypersexuality assigned to black womanhood. Well, yeah, that's because that's what y'all brought us over here for. And so for us to own ourselves as sexual beings doesn't mean that we're about to be out here wild and out, but it means that we're not owned by you. And it's it's still a control mechanism, or at least exactly. I can say for myself, I can't talk exactly. for everybody, but there's this hypersexual black female image that the world continues to push out, like exactly. the Cardi B's of the world. And Cardi is free to be Cardi, but we have to ask why white record labels are seemingly only willing to put a certain type of black female out there. And I think because we're afraid of that and it's, it's birthed from control, they want us to be that. So the idea becomes, well, you can't embrace your sexuality at all. You have to actually be the, become the opposite of that and be ashamed of your body, be ashamed of being a woman, hide all of who you are. And that is still a very dramatic response response. Yes. And, and it, so you're still living in control. You're living yes. in fear of becoming this other thing and it's still not living free. Come on. Hey, look, before you guys start your own podcast over here, <laughs> I did just want to say I am a Beyonce fan. So I kind of understand what you guys are saying in the sense of like her music and songs, but I just, I love listening to you guys talk and feel like don't leave us, Katina, and start a new podcast. <laughs> but I'm a Beyonce fan. I just want it on the record. I am a fan. I'm moving to I'm LA just so I can talk to Kiara every day. Uh-huh. Hey, I've got one question, and then I know, and then we'll end here really soon. But I was kind of wondering, you you kind of talked about how you you love stories, and it's a way to empathize with people. But I wonder, is there a story or like a person from history that you look up to um, I, I say that because we just had an episode on Maria Stewart and I had no idea who she was. And now she's like this American hero to me. But I'm wondering, is there anybody that you look to, like even in amongst stories in history? Yeah. And I'm going to say the stereotypical thing because it's just true. Um, I think my parents, I, I write about them mm. in my book, but I Love mentioned it. my mom was 19 when she had me. My dad was also in college. He was 21. And I had the privilege of walking through so much of their life with, with them. Mm. I, you know, remember and have been told stories about because I was very little people being like, you're basically going to become a statistic now. You're teenager having a baby, this is going to ruin your life. And mm. instead watch my parents go from being college students to grad students. My mom graduated from University of Virginia Medical School. My dad graduated from the law school to becoming a very successful 
doctor lawyer couple and i've you know at the beginning of our journey we were poor we didn't have any money my first crib was a small dresser drawer like pulled out from a drawer mm-hmm. and i watched them very much move through the world navigate white spaces and mm-hmm. become the most successful version of themselves and i think just because I had a very up close seat to that, it really embedded in me that anything is possible. There are no limitations. Yes. That's cool. I love it. So sadly, we are coming toward the end of our time. And the way we like to send people off is by inviting you to speak, not to us, but directly to our audience who's listening. And tell them some takeaways. And also, I think you can use this as a time to also direct them to your book and some of the other stories that you haven't had time to share here, but that they can find in your book. Therapy isn't just for white people. Yeah. I would love for people to remember that your stories matter, your experiences matter. Uh, don't let other people tell you that you're, you shouldn't feel the way you feel or you're being dramatic or that you should just get over something. I think it's really important to learn to trust your feelings and your emotions. I think emotions and feelings are very much indicators. And when we ignore that flashing red light, that indicator, then we're only doing a disservice to yourself. So Mm. learn to trust yourself, build relationship with yourself because it's the one that you're going to have forever for the length of your life. Uh, And to the extent that you feel comfortable, I think it's powerful to share your stories. One of my favorite quotes is the most powerful words in the world besides I love you are me too. And Mm. just feeling very seen in your experiences and not isolated and knowing you're not the only one is, can be very freeing. And you can't feel that unless someone has the courage to share their story and give you the opportunity to say, I dealt with that too. Uh, So share your stories. If you want to buy my book, you can do so. It's called Therapy is Not Just for White People. You can get it on Amazon or from Barnes and Nobles or Bookshop. You can probably order it at your local bookstore. If you want to get it Mm -hmm. from a Black-owned bookstore, there's Malik Books here in Los Angeles, and they have exclusive signed copies available. Mm -hmm. And always love when people are willing to support Black bookstores. I love it. Thank you so much for coming and sharing. Like this has been such a tremendous blessing to my soul. And what a way to step into my 50th year of life to hear from such a wonderful young lady who has embraced herself and her journey and is doing trauma work and telling everybody about it and being vulnerable and transparent. Kiara Imani, thank you. Thank you so much. Your blessing. Thank you for having me. This podcast has been amazing. Uh, And also, happy birthday. Happy early birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll see you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We're nearing the end process for our book, which you'll be able to order on Amazon very soon. So keep your eyes open in the next few weeks for that. On our next episode, we will be discussing Indigenous Peoples Day. We'll leave you with this quote from Kiara herself. Since racism is learned, it can also be unlearned. And storytelling is a powerful force that can help people, especially mental health professionals, gain a deeper understanding of the types of things their black clients may be experiencing. 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.